So today we are actually starting a brand new series for the summer on the Psalms. You can say that three times fast if you want. Summer Psalm series, super summer sermon Psalm series. All summer long we are going to be looking at the book of Psalms in the Bible. Now who in here just loves getting into the Psalms? Is there anyone here? A lot of hands. I thought I would see that. I was hoping for some hands. See, I've grown up always loving music, always loving worship, really loving studying lyrics and words. Um, but surprisingly enough, I've never been one of those people who like just loves the songs. Now, don't get me wrong before you kick me off the stage here. I like the songs. Don't get me wrong at all. I like the songs. I'm just not one of those people that, you know, shares the picture of nature with a nice psalm printed on it. Right? If you go up to my office, you're not going to see like a painting of a pasture with the Lord is my shepherd on the bottom. That's just not me. No, some people are. I'm not the kind of person who treats the Psalms like the fruits and veggies on my Canada food guide where it's like, you know, I got to get my seven to eight servings of Psalms every day. Just not me. You know, I like the Psalms, but you know what? Give me some of that Sermon on the Mount, some of Jesus' teaching, or like, let's look at some of the prophets in the Old Testament, or you know what? This life situation, I bet that some guy wrote a letter about this and it's in the New Testament. Let's find that. That's where I like to spend my time in the text. But with all that being said, I'm really excited for this series this summer because, well, first of all, I don't spend a lot of time in the Psalms, so I'm really excited to, you know, grow and push myself a bit, and maybe this sermon series will help me spend a little more time in the Psalms. I think, second of all, there's writings in the Psalms for, I mean, almost every emotion and feeling and and life situation you can think of. So even though Lou and Chris and Jim and myself are all preaching on the Psalms this summer, I'm expecting that each week will probably look very different because the Psalms just cover such an array of different topics. And finally, I think, although many of us, I mean, lots of people put up their hands, many of us love spending time in the Psalms. I think it's one of those topics that we don't really preach on a ton, right? Sometimes someone will use a Psalm or a verse maybe um, in connection to another topic or another point, but very rarely do we actually have messages on an entire Psalm. And I think the last one I heard was actually last summer, and it was one that I wrote when I was guest speaking at a church that was also doing a summer Psalms super series sermon series for the summer. Last summer. Again, five times fast later, it's, you can say it as many ways as you want. And for those who are wondering, yes, I picked a different Psalm for today. I didn't just reuse my message from last summer. Don't worry. So I'm excited about this series, and I hope that you are too. Um, so let's get started. If you have a Bible with you this morning, um, you can open up to Psalm 59. <coughs> that didn't work at all. Psalm 59. Now, if you look at the beginning of this psalm, you'll see that there's a little subtitle. Now, in most places within the Bible, when you have little subtitles, um, maybe it says, Jesus feeds the 5,000, or faith and works, or Noah and the flood. Most places where there's subtitles, those are just added in by the English translators. So the subtitles that are in my NIV today might be different than the ones that are in your ESV, or your KJV, or your NLT, or any other combo of letters that make up your Bible. These are added by the English translators just to make things easier to come across. So if you're thinking to yourself, man, I know that Jesus talked about loving your enemies. I think that was in the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's around the beginning of Matthew. You can flip through and see, oh, love your enemies. It's easy to find. But with these Psalms that have subtitles, most of these are actually conveyed in the Hebrew text. 
So it's, when it's translated to English, these are coming from the original or the Hebrew text. Now, of course, not all the Psalms have subtitles. And some of them have subtitles, but they're not very detailed. And we're left to guess, maybe educated guess, who maybe wrote this Psalm or what is this Psalm referring to. This sounds like David, but might not be. But that's not the case with Psalm 59, the Psalm that we're looking at today. It has a very detailed subheading. So looking at this, we read that this is a Psalm of David. So it's a Psalm of David, and it's a miktam, which is one of those Hebrew words that as much as English people try and translate it and come up with an English equivalent, there really is no like English word for what a miktam means. We, th- we think it's a musical term, but really we don't know. It just doesn't have an English equivalent. So it's a Psalm of David, it's a miktam, whatever that means, and it's, what does it say? It's about when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Now, in 1872, uh, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who's arguably one of the greatest preachers of all time, um, he explained this trend in his time where scholars were trying to explain that the authorship or the details in these subheadings was maybe a little less than legitimate. Right? They were trying to argue, mm, I don't know if we can believe this. And Charles Spurgeon said in my Andrew Longmire paraphrase, everyone's just trying to show how smart they are by just disagreeing with what everyone else says. I mean, does that not sound like our world today? Or what? 1872, everyone's trying to show how smart they are by just disagreeing with everyone else. But Charles Spurgeon guessed that someday the trend would reverse, and sure enough, nowadays, the majority of modern scholars, not all of them, but the majority, would agree that there's no real reason to doubt the legitimacy of these subheadings. So we're going to move forward with that assumption and say it makes sense, and most of modern scholars would agree, that this is a psalm written by David about the time that Saul sent men to his house to kill him in the morning. So that's where we start off. But I guess before we dive into this psalm, it's about a specific story. I guess we should probably familiarize ourselves with that story. So some of you may know some of this story, and some of you may not, so I'm just going to run through it quick for all of you. So Saul was the king. Saul was the king. And David served him. Sometimes he was leading his armies in war against the Philistines, and sometimes he was serenading Saul with his lyre, which is like a little harp. But I guess Saul didn't really love David's music, because one time we read that David was playing his harp, and Saul was overcome by a harmful spirit, and he tried to stab David with his spear. He freaked out. I guess he didn't like that song. He tried to stab him with his spear. But David escaped, because he was nimble and, and spry, and he escaped, and he ran home. Unfortunately, going home doesn't really do too much when you're married to the daughter of the guy who's trying to kill you. He knows where your house is. He was probably there for Thanksgiving dinner last year. A few laughs. There we go. He knows where your house is. So Saul sent men to watch David's house. They surrounded the house during the day, or during the evening, sorry, and they were going to kill him uh, in the morning. You know, to me, it's like they had the decency to let him get a full night's sleep before they murdered him. But David's wife, Michal, she's clever. She says, honey, my dad has lost his marbles. You need to get out of here before they kill you. So she lowers him out of the window, and he escapes. Now, wanting to buy more time for him, she takes a statue, she puts it in the bed, covers it up with the covers, and takes some goat's hair that she has laying around and puts it on top of the statue to make it look like David's, like, you know, just sleeping with the covers up and his hair sticking out. Now, in the morning when the soldiers come knocking, she says that he's sick. So, you know, they probably poke their head in and looked and see what looks like a person with the covers up with the hair sticking out. And so they leave him alone, again, having the decency to let him get fully healthy 
before they come to murder him. So the soldiers go back to Saul, and Saul says, I don't care. I'm, I'm not, I don't care if he's sick. Bring the whole bed if you have to. I want him. So the soldiers go back, and at this point they realize they've been deceived. But at this point, David is long gone. And it's with this backdrop in mind that we finally get into Psalm 59. Starting in verse 1. <coughs> Pardon me. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. This psalm starts quite simply with David asking God for help. If you notice, he's very repetitive in this passage. He says, deliver me. Be my fortress. Deliver me. Save me. And usually when something is repeated like this, that's a pretty good sign that it's important. It's no mystery at this point what David is trying to get across. God, help. David uses this word fortress, and in the Hebrew, the word that he uses for fortress doesn't just convey like a, a safe castle, but it's this idea of actually being high up away from danger. So he's not just saying, God, shield me. He's saying, God, lift me right out of here. Lift me away from the danger. Protect me. Lift me out of harm's way. Back to the text, verse 3. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. For no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plate. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. At this point, David's explaining further his situation to the Lord. He says, I haven't done anything against these men. God, I haven't done anything against Saul, even. But they're trying to kill me. He's saying, God, that's not fair. This is not just. You're a God of justice. This is not justice that is what is happening here. I've done nothing wrong against these men. It's like he's saying, you're in control here, God. I trust that you're in control. You need to come down here and show them who's boss. Show them that they're not just sinning against me. They're sinning against you. He says, arise. He says, God, arise, awaken, rouse yourself. Almost as if he thinks God is asleep. And Charles Spurgeon again compares David's plea almost to the pleas of the disciples in the New Testament. Remember, they're on the boat in the storm and Jesus is sleeping on the boat. And Charles Spurgeon makes that comparison. and says, it's, it's kind of like that. It's like David's trying to wake God up. And what I like about that comparison is that it reminds us of the desperation of the situation. Right, The disciples out on the waves, they thought they were going to die if Jesus didn't wake up. And in this case, David thought, I'm going to die if God doesn't wake up. It shows us that David, like the disciples, trusts in God's ability to do something. He's just not sure if he's going to. He thinks that God's asleep. And as I read this, I can't help but think, how often do I or how often do we in our own situations Maybe talk to God, maybe pray to God, believing he has the ability to do something, but not being sure if he actually will. How often do we pray, believing that God can do something, but seriously doubting that he will? And for David, in this situation, it's like that's not even an option for him. It's like he's saying, God, I don't know if you're sleeping or what, if you're paying attention here, but something seriously awful is about to happen, so I need you to come and intervene. He's real with God about where he's at. And we have this beautiful 
somber picture of him just crying out for help and comfort. God, where are you? I need you here. Let's continue on in verse 6. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. (coughs) See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. Now, I probably don't have to tell you, but I'll do it anyways, that when David refers to dogs here, he's not talking about cute, fluffy little puppies. Right? He's not talking about the cute little fluffy puppies. He's talking about wild, mangy, scavenger dogs that would prowl the city just looking to eat anything that they could. He says this word here, see what they spew from their mouth. And when he says spew, it's this idea of bursting out, bubbling over. We almost get this picture of like rabid dogs that are just vicious, just looking to hunt, just to eat something. He says their words are like swords. We have this picture of the men wandering around the town, cursing and talking foul. They say, who can hear us? As if they're cursing against God, not even believing that God's listening to them. Who can hear us? It doesn't matter that we're cursing God. It doesn't matter that we're going against God and his servant here. The fact that David notes the sharpness of their words would suggest that they're speaking negatively, specifically against him, which is confirmed later in the text when he says that they're slandering him. Now, I grew up in a small town, and... One thing that everybody likes about the small town picturesque little image is that in a small town, everybody knows everybody. The negative side of that is that if anything happens ever in a small town, everybody knows what's happened to everybody. You have no privacy, next to no privacy in a small town because everyone knows everyone's business. And I remember in high school once uh, being told by some random person in the middle of the day, uh, in the high school, the high school, the one high school in our entire town, that there was going to be a fight after school between two students by the student parking lot. I remember at the end of the day, standing, waiting for my bus that I took home, and the bus picked up in the northeast corner of the school, and the student parking lot was in the southeast corner. So when I was standing to catch my bus, I looked over to where this supposed fight was going to be happening, and there was just hordes of people Hundreds of students had gathered to see this fight. Maybe even a couple of the teachers. I think the local police even showed up. Um, when I say local police in a small town, we have OPP officers as our local police. People had showed up to see this fight. But no fight ever happened. It was all just a rumor. See, someone had made it up as a class assignment to show how word spreads throughout the school. How they could start a rumor at lunch, and by the end of the day, the entire school would be out to see this fight that was going to happen, that people want to see negative things happen, that people are willing to spread anything even if they don't know it's true. And I think this culture that David finds himself in is probably not too different from that. Close quarters, neighborhood, everyone's looking around wondering what's going on. So we have this picture of David not only scared for his life, but knowing that the whole town is being poisoned against him. And at the very least, even if they're not saying negative things about him, people are going to be wondering, why are Saul's soldiers waiting outside of David's house to kill him? He must have done something really bad. So David's scared for his life, thinking the whole town is against him, and he can't even say anything to defend himself. And what is his response? Verse 8, But you laugh at them, Lord. But you laugh at them. It's like he's saying, 
God, these things that they're saying and doing, they're real and they're scary and they're hurtful. But God, to you, it's laughable that they would dare to defy you. God, to you, their strength is a joke. Sometimes in the midst of difficult situations, it can be good to remind ourselves just how much bigger God is than our problems. It doesn't take away from the realness. It doesn't always take away from the pain or make the fear dissipate. And if it did, then we wouldn't have this song. But it can help to remind us that we serve the God who created existence. As Cliff said, we serve the God who triumphs over death. Death has been defeated. We serve the God who laughs in the face of those who stand against him. Let's continue in verse 9. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. God will go before me, and he will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them, Lord, my shield, or my people will forget. In your might, uproot them and bring them down for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter, consume them in your wrath, consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Once again, David uses that term fortress, and it's this time embedded in just this beautiful pronouncement of hope and trust. God, you are my strength, and I'm watching for you. You're my fortress. I can rely on you. God, you'll go before me. How beautiful is that? In the midst of this despair, we have this beautiful pronouncement of hope. Then David says this interesting thing that's confusing to maybe some of us. It was confusing to me. Where he says, but don't kill them, Lord. Don't just immediately destroy them. He says, instead, let them be brought down by their own sin. Let them be brought down by their own pride. Now, some of you might lose some trust in me after this, but I'm going to say it. I'm a huge fan of the TV show Survivor. I love Survivor. I've been watching Survivor since I was a little kid. I've watched every season, some of them more than once, which is obsessive and weird, and you probably think I'm a huge weirdo now. But I love Survivor, and if you don't know the show, what happens is they take... It's a reality show. They take 16 to 20 Americans. They put them on some tribes in a deserted island somewhere, and they get them to survive. And they compete against each other to win things uh, to make their life easier. So maybe they'll win a tarp to keep them out of the rain, or maybe they'll win some fishing supplies, or they can win a challenge to keep them safe. Because they're voting out people every week, and at the end of the 40 days or 39 days they spend out in the wilderness, one person can win a million dollars. That's Survivor. And in Survivor, there's this one time... Years and years ago, season six, they just finished season 34, so this is a long time ago, season six, I know, it's such a great show, I love it. (laughs) Back in season six, it was the first time ever they divided the teams into a team of women and a team of men, because they were in the Amazon, and the Amazon is known for the Amazon warriors, a tribe of women. So they divided the teams into a team of men and a team of women, and what I remember about that beginning of that season is the men were so cocky. We got these buff guys, these athletic guys coming out. They're looking at the girls and saying, well, (laughs) we're never going to lose. I don't know how they could ever beat us. 
They're saying, well, they're good to look at, but, I mean, there's no way they're beating us in any of these challenges. In mental or physical, we've got them beat on everything. They're so cocky. And then in the very first challenge of the season, the men lose epically. The two strongest, most athletic guys on the team lose the challenge because they can't cross over this tiny little balance beam. And at the end, to even finish the challenge, they have to degrade themselves so much that they get down on the ground and crawl across this balance beam on their bellies. They look ridiculous. And what makes it so memorable is the fact that they were so prideful. They were so cocky. They said, we're never going to lose. And then the two most athletic guys lose it for the whole team. The reason I mention this is this idea comes to mind when David says, don't kill them, let them be brought down by their own pride. He's saying, if you just kill them, God, people will forget. You know what? It'll be a big thing right now, but down the road, people won't remember that. But if they are ruined and made to look foolish and just destroyed by their own sin, people will see and they will remember that what they did was wrong. And they will acknowledge in that moment that God is in control. There's a guy named Derek Kidner, and he wrote a commentary on the Psalms. He says, The longing to see God acknowledged is the mark of a true servant. And that's what David's doing here. He's saying, God, I don't want you to just kill them. I want people to acknowledge that you're in control because of how they're destroyed. He says, I want them destroyed. Don't get me wrong. But God, I want you to use this awful situation for your glory. And at this point, I can't help but think about Jesus because a lot of his teaching follows this mindset, right? Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. And it's not pray that they'll burst into flames. It's pray for them, love them, let God's glory be revealed in them. In Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, pray that your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a call for justice and judgment. But he also says, forgive us, our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So it's a call to come and reign in justice and judgment, but also, God, we want you to forgive us, and we want to forgive others as well. In fact, the very idea of surrendering to Jesus and asking him to be Lord of our life involves this idea of using the bad for the good. See, God is glorified as we acknowledge our sin and acknowledge his sovereignty. As we admit the error in our ways, and ask for forgiveness from the one who died for us while we were yet sinners. Let it be known to the ends of the earth that God is in control. Let's finish it out. Psalm 59, verse 14. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if they're not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Again, we have repetition here. David just crying out and saying, God, I trust you. I believe you. You're my fortress. He repeats again this idea of dogs, and this time coming back, and he says, howling in despair when they are not satisfied. And at this point, I can't help but picture this scene from Lord of the Rings where there's these evil men who are coming to try and kill the main characters and they 
walk into the room and you see all these beds, which you think have the main characters in them, the heroes, and they come in and they take their swords and they just start stabbing the beds. And the first time watching it, I'm like, it's, we're like an hour into this. This is like a 10-hour movie. Like, how are we killing all the main characters right at the beginning here? But then they flip off the sheets and realize they've just been stabbing pillows because the heroes are long gone. And they scream and they howl because they've been deceived. And that's what I picture here. These men come back to kill David and they realize we've been fooled, we've been deceived, and we can't even do anything against this woman because it's the king's daughter. Like, what do we even do here? He tricked us. They cry out in frustration. And Kidner points out the contrast here between this howl in frustration and then what do we read in verse 16? David says, but I will sing of your strength. We have this beautiful contrasting image of these evil men howling in frustration and David combating it with singing in praise, singing in worship. It's a beautiful picture. Again, David says, you are my fortress. And many translations at this point actually say, you have been my fortress. And what I love about that is it conveys this idea of remembering what God has done and using that for strength while you wait to see what he will do. Remembering what God has done and using that for strength while you wait for what he will do. It's like David saying, God, I'm facing these evil men who want to kill me. But you've gotten me out of situations like this before. I mean, Saul just tried to kill me with his spear the other day. Right? I'm, I'm marching against the Philistine armies day after day. You remember that guy, Goliath? He was a giant. And God, you helped me in that scenario. And I killed him with a stone. That should have been impossible. Before that, I was a shepherd. I was fiending off lions and bears who were coming against my sheep. Like, God, you protected me in those situations. God, you've brought me this far. Why should I doubt that you're still with me. What's tough is that when we're in situations of adversity <coughs> where God seems absent or distant, or maybe we're just so confused as to why he's allowing certain things to happen, in those moments it seems impossible to focus and remember all of the good things that God has done. It's like if I say, don't think about elephants. Now you're all picturing an elephant. In those times of struggle and difficulty, when things are negative, it can be impossible to not focus on the negative things and to focus on the blessings instead. But that's just what David says. He says, God, I'm in the midst of things here, but you've been my fortress before, and you're going to be my fortress again. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things above. That's what David's doing here. He's saying, think about the ways that God has blessed you. Think of the impact that Jesus has had on your life. Maybe you're here today and you actually find this really difficult to put into practice. Maybe you're in the midst of a tough season or maybe for some of you it feels like life is one big tough season. Maybe you find it difficult to see God's provision in your life. And if that's you today, I just want to say that you're not alone. I too struggle sometimes with seeing God's hand in the situation. I struggle with trusting in God's plan. Natasha can attest to the fact that there have been days this very week while writing this message that I've struggled with fear and anxiety and worry. Emotions and thoughts that definitely don't go hand in hand with fully trusting in a sovereign God. In those moments where I just struggle to remember the 
or identify the blessings of God in my life. I resonate with David in this psalm, just crying out to God, God, what's the deal? I, I thought you were, you were in this. I thought you wanted this to happen. I thought you were blessing this scenario. God, where are you? Don't you see what's about to happen here? God, don't you see what's going on? I love this quote by Craig Groeschel. He's a pastor. He wrote a book called The Christian Atheist. He says, Sometimes God may intervene to prevent or ease our pain or even help us escape from it. But we may not always recognize his loving action when it happens. We can't count how many times our gracious Father has protected us from certain harm because we don't even know it took place. Sometimes we don't even think to thank God for his blessings because we don't even notice them. We don't even think about them. How many of us today got here in thousand-pound rolling chunks of metal that literally are powered by explosions happening right in front of your feet? And people drive like wackos. Like, I can't tell you how many times Natasha and I have come home and said, well, I almost just got hit by a car, or I almost just saw someone get hit by a car, because people are crazy. And yet, how many times in those situations do I think, I'm so focused on the negative, like, man, that person's a jerk, instead of thinking, like, wow, God, thank you for saving me and avoiding that accident. Yesterday, we celebrated Canada Day, and whether it always feels like it or not, the truth is that we live in one of the most blessed countries in the world. We are here this morning, allowed to worship and learn about the God that we want to, without legitimate fear of being blown up just because someone disagrees with us. Friends, I know hearing these sorts of things isn't always helpful, especially if you're in the midst of a difficult situation. In the midst of those tough seasons, it can be one of the most frustrating things to hear someone say, count your blessings, or think about all the people who have it worse than you. That can be so frustrating, and I promise that's not what I'm trying to do here this morning. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that the truth is sometimes God might show up in a big, flashy, miraculous intervention. Something that's easy to recognize as a blessing. And sometimes he might not. That's what that whole song that that Greg was singing, even if, is about. Even if you don't, I'm still going to trust. Look at David. Sometimes he might help you miraculously slay the giant that's in front of you that you have no chance of beating on your own. And sometimes God's provision looks like being lowered out of a window so you can get a head start on the guys who are chasing you and trying to kill you. But whether it's a giant or a window, it's those experiences that give us strength to look back and say, God, you've been my fortress. And look ahead and say, God, you will be my fortress. See, if David was waiting for a big flashy miracle, he might have been severely disappointed. Yet when given a rope out of a window, a solution that doesn't even fully guarantee his safety, it doesn't even sound that good to me. I mean, he's crawling out the window in the middle of the night and running. He doesn't know how fast they're going to be behind him. He doesn't know if he's going to be safe or not. He has this situation. He's lowered out of a window. And what's his response? I will sing. He's praising. He's worshiping. He's lifting up the name of the Lord. He considers this simple blessing, this simple provision, so important and so monumental that he wrote this song that we're reading today. 
which encourages others to do the same. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as we dive into this last song, we're going to sing another song. I pray that wherever you're at in your situation today, you find some inspiration from David. If you're in the midst of a difficult situation, take this time to cry out to God and ask for his help. Ask for God's strength. Ask for the ability to trust him and to see his blessing in your life. Because, friends, it's hard. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling blessed right now, if you're feeling like you're just so incredibly blessed by God, you have all the more reason to stand and lift up your voice and praise and worship here with us this morning. Praise and worship the God that provides. Wherever you are, whatever you're going through, I wholeheartedly believe, like David did, that the God that we serve wants to meet you right where you're at. Whether it's the first part of the psalm where you're crying out in confusion and God, come and help me, where are you at, God? Or whether it's the latter half where he says, you know what, God? You're still in control here and I will praise your name today. I will worship your name today. Let's pray.